The Voice America Business Channel is brought to you by Intercall, the worldwide conferencing leader. Check out easy and reliable conferencing solutions at www.intercall.com forward slash radio. My guest today, author James Redfield, was 43 when he published The Celestine Prophecy. Using an adventure parable approach that has been called part Indiana Jones and part Scott Peck, The Celestine Prophecy created a model for spiritual perception and actualization that resonated with millions of people and focused on the mysterious coincidences that occur in each of our lives. In disdaining the spotlight himself, Redfield proclaimed in the Celestine Prophecy that each of us must intuit his own spiritual destiny. As he writes in The Celestine Vision, his non-fiction title published in 1997, the actual writing of The Celestine Prophecy occurred from January 1989 through April 1991 and was characterized by a sort of trial and error process. Quite amazingly, as I remembered earlier experiences and wrote about them, lacing them into an adventure tale, striking coincidences would occur to emphasize the particular points I wanted to make. Books would show up mysteriously, or I would have timely encounters with the exact sort of individuals I was attempting to describe. Sometimes strangers would open up to me, for no apparent reason, and tell me about their spiritual experiences. After the self-published book was brought to the attention of Warner Books, they brought the rights and published the hardcover edition in March of 1994. The book quickly climbed up to the number one position on the New York Times bestsellers list, and it remained on that list for more than three years, joined by the tenth insight, which built upon the nine insights revealed in the first novel. The two books spent a combined 74 weeks on the New York Times list, making James Redfield the best-selling hardcover author in the world in 1996. The Celestine series of adventure parables continued in 1999 with the publication of The Secret of Shambhala, In Search of the Eleventh Insight. Set in modern-day Tibet, Redfield continued the inspiring journey of The Celestine Prophecy and the Tenth Insight, carrying readers to a new adventure in a sacred place where truths can affect all of humanity. In 2002, he joined author Michael Murphy and filmmaker Sylvia Timbers in a collaborative work entitled God and the Evolving Universe. The fourth and final book in the Celestine series, The Twelfth Insight, The Hour of Decision, was published in the spring of 2011. Author James Redfield joins me to talk about life and career on In Discussion. Welcome to In Discussion and my very special guest, author James Redfield. James, welcome to you. Thank you. Glad to be with you again. I certainly enjoyed our program yesterday, James. Uh, What a wonderful insight into your life and journey. We reached the point of talking about your segue into writing. And, of course, the Celestine Prophecy, an amazing start to that journey. You had talked about this in terms of nonfiction versus fiction. I had approached you with this question and also that narrative. 
Could we continue that for a while? I know that this is an amazing journey that uh, works with synchronicities and resonate with myself in terms of having people coming out of the woodwork, whether I'm in the studio or on the road or in the desert. How did that affect you and consume you as far as the methodology was concerned in starting this first book? Well, I knew that synchronicity, which is, of course, this, the perception of meaningful coincidences, you know, it's a, a sense of you know, one has a destiny unfolding and somehow the universe collaborates with that and, and brings information at just the right time. Or, and of course, it's, it's definitely connected to one's intuition in terms of being in the right place at the right time. But I knew that, you know, from, from studying uh, academically, you know, um, the teachings of Carl Jung, who coined the phrase synchronicity, and and other, you know, some of his proteges through the years. Ira Progoff, you know, made uh, discussed synchronicity back in the '60s and early '70s. So, you know, there's all, already a really strong dialogue about this phenomenon, and it was to me it was reaching finally the the masses who were interested in human potential. So that connected to my work in, uh, as a therapist, uh, realizing that there were things that, that get in our way when, you know, to open up to this. The main measure of whether we're opening up for me at that time, and still is really, is how much synchronicity is going on in your life. One of my teachers uh, once told me, you your life is none of your business in a way, you know, because we we really are trying to get in a place where you follow the clues and you follow these synchronicities, and, and what happens is that you, you discover a truth that is yours to tell, and if that's genuine and soul-sourced, uh, soul I think what occurs is that the universe feels, again, as though it's cooperating, opening up for your dream to happen. So I had a dream that, you know, that I could provide some clarity about all this right there in the 90s. Um, it just felt to me like all of us were tuning in to these coincidences. Or all, all of us were opening up to this sense of destiny that, hey, we are here to do something important if we can just figure out what it is. So that was the impulse behind uh, this book, this first book, it's interesting to note. And I don't, I don't really talk about this much because it sounds a bit chosen or something. But I really had a, a kind of prevision of it as as I was as I was really conceiving it in a few moments of uh, of real peak connection of my own. You know, this, you know, I was a, a successful therapist, but. I knew there was something more that I was trying to do, and as I would seek to envision that and, you know, and, and, and to view that as a spiritual event in my life, what happened is I just had a series of real profound, you know, I call them daydreams because that's really what it felt like, you know, where your mind just sort of goes off into a daydream about something, but you sort of get carried away. I mean, I think some people would call that a vision. And um, what happened a couple of different times, I would have a vision, daydreamy kind of lapse, where I went into a, a real viewing 
and, and feeling kind of like a pre-emotional feeling of being able to write this book and to get it out there and that, you know, I, I saw that it would be helpful. And so I, uh, you know, afterward, and again, I, I, I tell this story in parts, but essentially it was, uh, it was uh, for me, it was the birth vision, which I talk about in my second book, The Tenth Insight, because it, I think that's something we've brought into consciousness as well, that we do have these previews, uh, memory of uh, uh, something that kind of comes in with a burst of inspiration. It gives us a sense that there's something for us to do and something that we can do. You know, there's something the uh, the larger part of ourselves and maybe even the universe itself wants to cooperate to get done in the world. So without making that too metaphysical, I just that happened to me a couple of times and, and I discounted it almost completely. You know, being a 21-year-old and not even having completed another degree yet, you know, I had that vision and I knew it had something to do with all this, with this, you know, again, this clarity about human potential and this measure for that that I thought and felt very early on because of the synchronicity that I was having as this, you know, this this perception of meaningful coincidence. There's several areas that come up for me in that. If you were utilizing old terminology, you would be pointing out a collaboration, as you have a collaboration between an author and a publisher. But in this, I suspect that you are taking a journey of co-creation. You are making a choice point, maybe knowingly or unknowingly, that it is co-creation with a divine sense of consciousness, whether that's from human beings or places. I was interested that you had spent time in Sedona, and I'm sure that there you are finding this sense of consciousness that overlaps and is whole, not only in Mother Earth, but in human beings. I went there recently and spent time with Dron Velo Maltekisadeg, sitting on a mountain, realizing the potential of understanding those wavelengths. To you, did it become that co-creation as you began to write that narrative? Was it a struggle to start with, and yet the synchronicities give you that step into a co-creative process? Uh, absolutely. You know, it's a, when the term co-creation is a great term because it is, you know, your ego is cooperating with some greater part of yourself that that wants to deliver this information or deliver this discovery into the world. And, and uh, that, that's exactly the way it felt for me. I mean, I had, you know, I had a lot of, by then, through the end of the 80s, you know, I was, I'd been working at, at, by that time and a long time, really, and as careers go. And then, you know, I wanted to write, and I, I just thought uh, around 1989 that, you know, I had to get this out. I had to devote myself to it, and so that's what that's what I did. And uh, you know, the process is is very interesting because you know you've you've got people in your life that invariably say, "Well, you're you know, you know what what book? You know, describe it to me." Well, I can't describe it. You know, I'm I'm working. <laughs> you know, so then you're narcissistic, and you've got this. 
uh, you know, so you have a lot of people telling you that. What makes you think you can do that? You know, are you being realistic? And and I truly had to, um, you know, take a leave of absence uh, from a position I had, and and uh, you know, cash in my retirement plan and set myself up in a little one bedroom apartment and devote myself to it. And and so uh, that's what I did, and. The process continued to be very synchronistic. You know, another teacher that I once said that, uh, listen, the, the way you know that you're on the right track is that it works. You know, things happen that help you. And uh, I did feel as though I was in, you know, the, the universe had started to honor this devotion that I had. And so I was having a lot of synchronicity, uh, you know, in order to get it done. Uh, but it wasn't as though it something uncorked, and I was able to channel it in. You know, uh, didn't happen that way for me at all. It was it was very as a real labor. Once I decided that this was this should be a story that in, embodied this information, I wanted to to talk about and to and this clarity about what we were going through to that that time in history. That began, you know, I started to see the story, and it was bits and pieces. You know, it's a parable. It's, you know, people ask me how much of this story is true. I say all the important parts. And uh, what that means is there's a lot of me and things that happened to me uh, and a lot of in different circumstances, and out of that came a kind of parable that captured the outer world. And at that moment, I believed in the a rich experience that I could draw on to create uh, these experiences in a story for a character, a main character that the reader could just identify with all the way through the story. Uh, as that character struggled to reach a clarity about, you know, this deeper understanding about, you know, a spiritual life that is available to us. So, uh, you know, the process is, uh, I always find interesting, and it's, it's a process that really keeps me very humble about it because, you know, uh, with these stories, you know, I start with a beginning and an ending, and those are usually very personal in their experience, in experience I've already had. But, you know, the first pass of that story, starting at the beginning and then creating it to the end, is only about, it was only about 100 pages long. Now, that's not enough for a novel. But, what would happen was that I would go back, you know, once I got to that end, ending, I went back and just started reading what I'd written as though I was a, a reader reading something uh, from someone else. And, uh, you know, the process was that, it, it, you know, whether you know, I'd get in two paragraphs or ten paragraphs or two pages and... I would get to a part where I would just realize intuitively that I'd left a whole, something out. You know, in fact, I'd, in the process of opening up to this clarity about spirituality, I'd left some building blocks out. So the second draft was the process of putting in the building blocks that I came to me to put in for this experience to really be clear to a reader. And after seven or eight times, then that was a 300-page novel, you know, or 250-page novel. And um, I did a couple of things with, with self-esteem prophecy that I did intuitively that I've never heard of anybody doing. Because I thought the story would be an experience that people could 
that would change them uh, and, and clarify what was really happening in their lives. I really felt like I, um, I had to test it so to see if that actually worked. So I took a whole year with the, with the manuscript relatively complete and would let total strangers, friends of friends, uh, not friends, but friends of friends that had no investment in one way or another and about, you know, related to me. And uh, I would just get them interested enough to read it, and they would say, well, you know, this part was really good, but I kind of got lost right at this part. And then so I'd, I'd give it to someone else and, and, and began to see places where it stopped working as a story, as that kind of story, transformational story, whatever you would want to call it. <laughs> and so I'd go back, and I would just try to figure out intuitively how to change that so it would work for, for people. I did that for a whole year, and in the end, what I got, I got to a place where the people I would give it to would say, you yeah, know, that was very, very uh, interesting and, uh, you know, kind of uh, gave me a, a really uh, important clarity about what I've also been experiencing. And, by the way, is there any way I could have a, a, a copy of this for a friend of mine, <laughs> you know? So when I got to that place, I said, well, it's time, you know, it's time. That's what every author wants to hear. And so then I started looking seriously for a publisher, had a couple, and all of them said, well, yeah, we'll publish this. You know, it's interesting. We'll have it out there in the bookstores in two years. And I would say, whoa, wait a minute. This this has to happen now. So obviously that's why in this, the first the copy of the book, I uh, you know created my own publishing company and, and figured out how to do that professionally and and then uh, got it out there uh, within about six months of that. You interestingly raise the metaphysical aspect. When I talk to authors, there is you can look at great authors like Bill Bryson. They always say first intuition is best. Uh, rarely will they go back through it and review it and change it if they can. I suspect, though, that you're in a different place because you are embedded in a metaphysical sense. Therefore, you are separated from a reality that you know will not have a synchronicity with the narrative. And then you are opening up to people around you, creating this co-creation process. I think the disturbance in any book is well-defined and possibly not too difficult to uh, emerge. Uh, The effort is probably one of the hardest parts with all the the different storylines in it. And then, of course, the resolution that wraps it up. When you were looking at the effort, more than the disturbance, were you looking back at your own life as to how you could create those vehicles, those methods, those solutions as to how to create that narrative? Were you looking at your time working with children, looking at your time uh, as a child in Alabama? Or were you disconnecting yourself from that? How did that work through the effort part of the book? Yeah, it it, it absolutely uh, drew on my experience. Growing up in a, a social reality and being as part of that social reality being introduced to a, a, a very uh, clear spirituality you know a Christianity that 
probably was more down to earth and lived than than most in terms of the version I was able to witness. So yeah, you know, it was this whole thing that I really believed. You know, once I started talking to people about this book, I really believed that you know the early childhood experience I had was much like other people had. You know, we were all waking up from a, a very you know solid uh, materialistic conformity you know you you talked about how you worked hard and you talked about how you're providing for your your children and you're talking about the the projects you were you know the materialistic projects you were working on for the most part you know out there and it was very rigidly set upon you know the avenues to success were very rigidly set and uh the way everybody talked and dressed and uh, the fact that you didn't talk about religion and politics with anybody other than maybe parts of your family. You know, you just don't do that because it got into, uh, it caused more trouble and not, uh, than not than otherwise. And, you know, that's the conformity that we had to break out of. And I think, of course, that that was the background, the, the sort of uh, setting social setting of the of the selfing process itself. You know, wake up, hey, there's something more going on than than is acknowledged in our social norms, you know, and our reality that, that uh, you know, we were uh, experiencing in the 60s. And what occurred uh, with me was that, it, yeah, it was, a, it, it was a real awakening that I personally was having, you know, the, this discovery that synchronicity was not a psychological term, it was a spiritual experience. And beginning to acknowledge that, you know, there was our, our experience itself could awaken from this conformity, and and we could start to live a much more exciting uh, life, you know, that was filled with these spiritual occurrences uh, and the sense of calling that we could discover that enriched life, and and got to that place that you know all the thinkers had talked about in terms of us reaching human potential, you know, that, that became less abstract and more and more something we could actually discover in our own experience. I think that people like Carl Jung were in so many ways ahead of their time when they talked about synchronicity in their work. And what amazed me with people like Carl Jung is that they were themselves immersed in the academia environment, which often I question as to whether it's a healthy one, but I'm sure that people find their way through that maze. But he clearly was very important in that synchronicity. Was he at that point in your life one of those um, prolific figures that you could see was uh, talking about the prophecies and, and really leading the way? Well, without a doubt, you know, he, he gave up everything. I mean, if you look at his life, you know, he was a protege of Freud's. Freud was wildly successful, uh, not only successful, but but dominated psychology and psychiatry. Uh, even even uh, was an equal to the greatest philosophers, you know, that of that time. And and he had chosen Jung as as his heir to be, you know, his his protege. But, you know, as strong minds all many times do, you know, Jung realized that he disagreed with Freud. And 
and, and, and they wanted to introduce these other metaphysical concepts and the whole idea of archetypes where you know, his basic idea was that our brains are designed to have a, to open up to a greater spiritual experience, a greater whole holistic experience that he called the self experience. But when he refuted Freud, Freud sincerely tried to destroy him. So he was stripped of all his uh, all the accolades of being uh, you know the heir to be, and was left alone to develop his own psychoanalysis that uh, he he thought would was would be more complete and. I think uh, I think uh, in a lot of circles now it's, it's accepted to be more uh, the whole psyche uh, program for the whole psyche. Is that not part of this process? If you look back at the scientists, you know the Teslas. You look back at Carl Jung. Many of these great writers, philosophers, many of them were completely discarded by society and in many ways absolutely torn to shreds. And yet they were ahead of their time. Their prophecies, if you want to put it that way, were certainly accurate. Did you see that in creating the Celestine prophecy, that two things that resonate with me, wrong or right, and maybe not well applied, but that to struggle is to really live. And in a society today, in whatever anybody is doing, and I'm just applying this to the narrative of writing a book or, or running a broadcast like this, that in order to gain everything, you almost need to lose everything. Would that be something that would resonate in your mind as to where we are today and, and what we need to learn in that materialistic society that you raise? You know, I think that, um, I think that, you know, the ego does, it does feel to the ego like it's risking everything, you know, to do this, to, to be your, you know, to take the hero's journey uh, and beyond. And um, uh, so sure, you know, I think everyone who's, creates something that catches on or is you know or that people value very often it's it's something that that they have to work on that's misunderstood for a long time now i i wasn't uh, outwardly vocal enough to be uh, to to you know as a therapist uh to have any criticisms in that regard that I had to endure in order to create this. You know, the, the great thing about a book is you just get, you know, you just sit in your your study and you write it, and uh, and somewhat, you know, by the when it's finished, it speaks for itself. You know, so great about art as opposed to a new scientific theory that you have to convince people of in steps. Uh, and I think that's what you were getting at. Or starting a business that has to be put together in layers, you know, I think it's much more difficult in a way. But you know, work of art, and 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 perhaps that's why I also chose the story form, because it, you know, once it's at, once it's completed, then it lives. It's its own energy and it lives out there. And uh, and then the then you just it's whether people uh, relate to it or not, identify with it or not, and I think. People did relate to the Celsing prophecy because it's it put into words that journey that they went 
you know, that was clarified in the book uh, was the journey they were already on and could relate to it. Uh, you know, a whole generation, and, and actually cross generations, of course, and and it was passed along. You know, nobody did anything really. The only thing that uh, that I did, um, Sally and I, you know, we just decided that we would just test the synchronicity of the book. You know, if it if you're on the right track, it works, correct? So um, we, you know, the first printing of that self-published copy was um, 2,000, I think, 2,000 paperbacks. And uh, it, what we did was we just traveled around, mainly through North Carolina, where she was uh, located then, and up into Virginia and D.C. and and uh, into the Midwest and down all the way to Miami uh, in the south. And and then in successive trips over about six months into the rest of the U.S. And the thing that we did is we went into a major city and uh, we had a good distributor, which, you know, every every publisher, every published book has to have a good distributor. It won't work, but we had a good one, New Leaf out of Atlanta. And uh, so we went into these little mom-and-pop stores, bookstores that were, you know, this was before the the chain stores took over, so they were everywhere. Uh, and we went into, into these big cities and just cruised through these, uh, many of the more metaphysical bookstores. We would just walk in, and I'd, I'd go to the buyer and said, hey, I, I want here's a, a reader's copy of a new book. Here's how you can order it if you want more copies. And then left that and then gave everyone who happened to be in the bookstore when we walked in a copy of the book, you know, in, in, in an effort to test the synchronicity of who might be there uh, when we walked in. And, uh, you know, by the time six months was over, the book was being passed around everywhere. It already crossed into Europe and just by people reading it and and the bookstore ordering more copies and people telling their friends and and by then I decided to go with a unable to keep up with that kind of surge made a deal with Warner Books in New York and that was fun too because they would say uh you know they were calling you know and uh, saying well look so sorry about not returning your phone calls before but you know, we'd love to take over the publication of your book. And, and finally, you know, I chose Warner because they understood the book. And, of course, the rest of it is, it you know, uh, still in 40 or 50 countries. It's It was passed along into places and, and published and did well in places with different, totally different cultures and religions and, and also different alphabets, for Christ's sake. You know, it was, uh, it was a very awing experience. And, uh, because so much of what how the book turned out, you know, I, I don't. It was so intuitively done. I don't take much credit for that. It was something that I think I, it, the book hit in a, in, a, in a moment that crystallized this new experience of spirituality that wasn't it, that crossed all religion. You know, it was the experience of the spirituality that had given rise to all these religions. And again, I think that's uh, that's what's you know that that was. They recognize the insights that they had had and were having, and then the, the rest is, is is just kind of what happened. As is, uh, I've sought to chronicle these other steps that that I believe we're all engaging in and discovering uh, in terms of our expanding consciousness, spiritual consciousness, uh, 
through the years. You're essentially crossing borders. My goodness me, that's that's old verbiage. But when you talk about evidence, well, firstly, risk is part of it, and obviously you took that risk with self-publishing, and that is part of that journey. But then you mentioned science. I think that perhaps you were looking at the audience or the demographic capability of the book. I look at two things. I look at the quantum thinkers, perhaps those who are still in some sort of uh, post-feudal industrial era paradigm. And then I look at technology of today and pair them up into this equation where science and technology becomes spirituality of the future. And perhaps that could be put into context with where you're going with it becoming so successful in so many different countries, because it did talk about a unified spirituality that was lending itself to any of those aforementioned camps. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I thought, I definitely thought that was significant because what it showed that it, is that at the, at the, at the basic level of experience and all the religious sort of philosophies and, and, and theologies out there and just wisdom traditions themselves, you know, they were all pointing to the same experience that I was seeking to describe and that all of us out there together were seeking to have. And, um, you know, it's, it's to me, very uh, clear and simple in a sense. And, and it almost has to be clear and simple in order for us to pursue it genuinely where, you know, this, it's not a, you know, an abstract theory that people hang on to and mystify others with how well they can talk about it and, and in a sense, control, you have a feeling of uh, control over the adherence to that philosophy because they can talk about it better or, or more completely. It transcends all that. So what happens then is that anybody without any background in psychology or or anything else can catch on to the language of this pretty quickly. Uh, and I think that's why we 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 had we started to have these other insights. You know, we the the first book went through nine of these archetypal openings, and that's that's what I boil them down to. You know, I call them insights. But it's really, you know, as Jung said, we're, we're, our brains are designed to pop open into the rest of its capability. And so we we're having these. To me, we're, we'll continue to have these archetypal firings. And of course, the next book was the the tenth insight, and, uh, and that was the time when we were discovering we were discovering the afterlife is a real place, you know, and everybody's interested in angels and angel theories and near death experiences, and suddenly the afterlife was not this abstract religious term, but actually a real place that we could actually uh, some people could could actually remember, and and if, and we. We suddenly our, our our brains popped and our consciousness popped when we realized, hey, that's a place that's real from which we come and to which we go back. And uh, of course, with that, you know, there was a clarity that came about. Hey, you know, I'm here on assignment. There's something I'm coming in here to do, and that's been the experience of the greatest artists and thinkers and political figures all through history. They they didn't do it completely, but they did it well enough to push civilization forward 
you know, there's always a shadow side because it's not ideal. It's just one push forward and towards some ideal that sometimes can be seen as a correction to what the last guy did when you come in. So anyway, we were interested in all that. And, uh, you know, that book came out in, you know, the uh, 96, I think, and, and 97. And then, and then the next next book was, a, you know, I felt by the end of the by the millennium, by the turn of the millennium, I really felt like we were we were moving into an eleventh step in our evolution, uh, which was when we started to realize that there was a power of intention and prayer, uh, and that uh, group prayer and group intention, you know, that mattered. There's some sort of field that we were expanding with our, you know, as we popped open into a greater reality. There was a, a, a sort of because we were all one, there was a kind of field that was set at every level of this evolution, you know, that helped other people uh, come into it. So it's, you know, and then, of course, it took a long time before the 12th insight came in. And, uh, you know, between, I wrote some other books, and but I was really waiting on the clarity that I thought would be the 12th and, and kind of culminating insight. Uh, which is a book that's come out in February of 11. You know, again, it's the same process. You know, the writing of the book was the same process, and the, but the message was one of, you know, we grokked all these insights, you know, and we felt them and we experienced them, them in spurts, but we have not begun to live them yet. And this 12th step, this 12th uh, uh, awakening, part of the phase of our awakening, uh, what's happening? Uh, I became convinced of it last year, and then all of a sudden, you know, the book came and it's out there now. And and what it really describes is how we're putting it. You know, we're taking all this abstract knowledge, years of discovery, self-discovery, and 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 working on ourselves and getting to this place and getting to a place where we really have to live it. And it it really is a kind of correction. Because out of all that liberation and human potential that came out, we got into the excitement of the left brain conversation. And, you know, the world itself gradually lost an honoring of truth and integrity. So that now we're coming back to truth, and that's the main measure of this 12th insight, coming back to the and honor over integrity and authenticity and personal transparency. As we move into the third program, therefore, and we talk about your latest book and also travel back in places, I would like to start the next program on the Celestine vision, living the new spiritual awareness, because you mentioned this. There is a lot of archetypal, uh, historical, scientific background that you talk in that. Is at that stage your work becoming more retrospective and looking back into civilizations, into that archetypal evidence? Yeah, it's, you know, it was, uh, you yeah, know, I wrote that book so that it would be clear that I'm not making this stuff up. This is a this is as much a view of history and of human evolution through the eons that reaches a conclusion about human potential and a greater level of clarity and experience we can have about living the spiritual life. So it's it's uh, it gave some breadth and, and answered some of the questions that people had about the novels. 
Well, I have enjoyed today's program yet again, James. I would like to go into much detail with you in our third program in the series. I do thank you. I do hope that you've enjoyed this. I certainly have. look forward to sharing that next program with you. Thank you. I'll look forward to it. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you have enjoyed this second program in the series with author James Redfield. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.